Welcome to the fourth podcast in the series I brought together to explore the history of class struggle in Britain. In this episode, we're discussing the emergence of mass trade unionism in the 19th century and the development of the ideas, organisations and struggles that eventually led to the formation of the Labour Party and also looking at the initial impact of the founding of the party. I'm pleased to be joined by Pauline Bryan, writer and member of the Red Paper Collective, founding member of the Keir Hardy Society and editor of the book, What Would Keir Hardy Say? Also by Simon Hanna, author of A Party with Socialists Within It, a history of how the party has taken varying roles in history. And Matthew Wally, professor of modern history at the University of Reading. Matt teaches a course entitled Building a New Jerusalem, the Labour Party from 1900 to 1945. Let me provide a brief overview of the period. From the early 1800s, as the Industrial Revolution progresses, and mid-century with the failure of Chartism initially to secure the democratic reforms it sought, we see the emergence and growth of the trade union movement. Trade unions secure legal recognition and protection for their activities. The expansion of the economy and demand for skilled labour enables skilled workers, the aristocracy of labour, to organise in the new model unions to secure better pay and to operate as friendly societies, collecting subscriptions to provide insurance against unemployment and sickness. Legislation was one to secure legal protections and the right to strike for trade unions. In 1867, the Manchester Trades Council convened a national meeting to form the TUC, the Trades Union Congress. In the 1880s, new unions are formed for less skilled workers, with breakthrough strikes like the women striking at Bryant and May Match Factory, supported by socialists like Annie Besant. Will Thorne establishes the Gas Workers Union with the support of Eleanor Marks. Tom Mann and John Burns campaigning for the eight-hour day, and Ben Tillett organising a bitterly fought docker strike for a minimum wage. Economic downturns challenged the belief in the free market, and socialist ideas spread with new organisations set up to promote them. The Social Democratic Federation, led by Heinemann, the Socialist League with William Morris, and the Fabian Society by the Webbs and supported by George Bernard Shaw. Working-class trade unionists and socialists like Keir Hardy became disillusioned with a strategy of permeating the Liberal Party to secure parliamentary representation for working people. Instead, Hardy stood and was elected to Parliament in 1892 independently, and in 1893 convened a conference of trade unionists and socialists to found the Independent Labour Party. In 1899, the Amalgamated Society of Railway Servants won support at the TUC for the convening of a conference of all organisations committed to securing a better representation of the interests of labour. In February 1890, the trade unions, the SDF, the Fabians and the ILP established the Labour Representation Committee as a distinct labour group in Parliament with its own whips and policies. After an electoral pact with the Liberal Party in the 1906 election, 29 Labour MPs were elected. The Labour Party had arrived. Let's talk about what society looked like socially and politically and economically as the backdrop to these developments in the 19th century. Matt, can I start with you? Yeah, well, I mean, it depends how far back you go, I guess. I mean, it's a, it's a period of great change uh, over the 19th century. Um, in many ways, the, the trade union movement as we know it and the Labour Party are a kind of product of the, the Industrial Revolution. And historians argue a lot about the term revolution because uh, obviously things didn't immediately change you know, after a certain date. It was a drawn out process across, across Britain. But we see the transformation of British society, really, the emergence of recognisable classes and a working class and a middle class a shift from the rural uh, to the urban in many parts of parts of the country, the development of an industrial society, and all these things kind of come together to, to um, provide the backdrop to where our, our labour movement um, emerges from. I think one caveat to that is that Britain as a whole changes in very different stages and very different speeds in different places. So the experience of someone in Devon, for example, is going to be very different to the experience of someone in 
Durham and, and things like that. So it's a very kind of, it's a mosaic in some ways, but a period of grand change. We've asked, discussed in this series, the development of Chartism. Chartism comes to an end, fades out. So from 1850 onwards, there's the beginning of quite significant economic growth of the industrial development of our economy mm. and the development of new trade unions. What did those trade unions look like? I mean, they emerged from very localised <coughs> organisations, which you can trace back again a long, 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 long way. But by the middle of the 19th century, you get in the beginning of national organisations, the locals becoming national. And in many ways, the kind of the trade union movement, as we know, its initial struggle was to get legally uh, recognised. And it's not until 1871, really, that they're, they're on a kind of legal legal footing. So the, the early struggles of our trade unions was about getting legal recognition so that they could act uh, freely and, and, and openly. So they become more better organised over the course of the 19th century, more centralised. And eventually, after 1871, they're on their, they've got their legal footing in, in, in many ways and can begin the process of trying to get political rep representation in Parliament, which they do in various ways. And it's that kind of struggle to get recognised and then kind of push for their demands and protect themselves and protect their members that will eventually lead to the, the emergence of the Labour Party in, in 1900. I want to tease out this issue that you've raised about the legal development of the mm. status of trade unions. We start off with the, well, 1800, and the, the trade unions are virtually illegal. So yeah. combination acts are introduced. So as you say, there's a battle over a period of time to repeal the combination acts. And it's interesting, I was looking at the 1859 Molestation of Workmen Act, which actually is about the right to picket, the establishment mm. of the, the right to picket. And that moves on then to, as you say, recognition in the legislation of the fact that actually going on strike is no longer a breach of contract and no longer a criminal act. But mm. in that that first batch of trade unions from the 1850s onwards, they're what they call the new model unions, who were they organising? What sort of workers were organised at that stage? It tends to be the skilled workers. We're talking engineers and miners. I mean, later on, there's going to be that notion of the aristocracy of labour. But the trade unions attended to always form around the better off the working class. It's a kind of one of those um, paradoxes, I guess, is that the, um, the the stronger the economy, the more power the trade unions have, the better, the more um, the the better paid in the better conditions workers have, the more leverage they have to push for their for their demands. Um, so our initial trade unions are definitely formed around the um, the better off workers, the skilled working working class. And it's going to be towards the end of the century that we begin to see unions pushing to organise semi skilled and unskilled workers and women workers in order to kind of broaden the kind of basis of a, of a trade union presence in the country. What I thought was interesting is the way that they organise themselves. The point you made on a centralised basis. Mm. And that's largely as a result of trying to protect their funds. So they're raising funds all, all the time yeah. in central strike funds, only allowing strikes to take place when they feel it's, they're in a strong enough position. But they're also demonstrating they're actually providing a service to their members. They're becoming friendly societies with collection of funds to support them, both in, when strikes occur, but as importantly on sickness and unemployment as well. Mm. How... How strong do you think the role was, or how significant was the role of trade unions in this sort of friendly society role? I think it's really important and absolutely integral to trade unions. I mean, people always talk about strikes because they're kind of spectacular moments, aren't they, of struggle and there's a heroicism about that. But it's the day-to-day -day work of trade unions at a grassroots level and in terms of things like mutual aid and all that kind of stuff, which I think is really important to me and kind of where they they come from really when they were smaller local organizations it would be local combinations or unions or box clubs who were keeping money behind the bar with a friendly barman to pay for a widow a widow if uh, her husband died um, in, a, in an accident or things like that it was on that kind of level that the trade unions really embed themselves into local communities and developments so i think it's really important i mean parallel to that of course is the, the co-op 
and how important that is as well for, for similar values amongst kind of early working class communities. We get to a stage where the new model unions are organizing skilled workers. They're developing their strength in terms of industrial organization. They're developing their funds to support the workers either in industrial action or to support them when they're sick or unemployed. As you say, there's other developments like the co-op. So it's about moving on from the sort of almost at times the revolutionary positions taken by Chartism Mm. Um, into one which would be described as almost a reformist role, trying to improve conditions, economistic demands that are the, the, the moving forward within society itself. And then, then there's this new wave of unions. So it moves beyond the skilled workers. Mm-hmm. Who does that involve and how does that come about? Well, I mean, in the... You're absolutely right. There's that kind of attempt to kind of almost take a, a more reformist approach. There's a, a relationships between things like the London Trades Council in particular and the Liberal Liberal Party. Once the Reform Acts start coming in, there's, there seems to be a process whereby change might be able to happen if you could get people in Parliament to argue on your, be, your behalf. And that kind of thing develops. Well, by the time we get to the 1880s and 1890s, Britain's no longer the only industrial nation. Other countries are industrialising. There's competition. People are catching up. And so industrialists and capitalists need to make more money. So there's kind of changes in terms of the relationship between labour and capital. And as a result, industrial tensions uh, surmount. You've also got the emergence of a what's often called a kind of socialist revival at, at, at this time. So people are arguing and explaining the inequities, if you like, of capital and industrial relations. And so new arguments are coming in and people are beginning to look across or beyond simply their own trade and their own position and look more generally at the, their community and, and the, the places they're in. This is a really kind of protracted and complicated process. It's not smooth by by any means, but you begin to get a kind of broader recognition of the wider interests of the of the community and the class as a whole rather than just simply sectional sectional interests. And so the organization of women workers, unskilled workers, general unions begin to develop. You know, people like Tom Mann and Ben Tillett come to the fore kind of uh, with bringing Annie Besson, uh, who's very famously, you know, leading the match girls and people organizing workers who hadn't previously been unionized and trying to get them re- them them recognition. What I find interesting is that the advances in terms of the new unions, in other words, the, the more general unions, come as a result of industrial conflict. As mm. you said, you've got the, the match girl strike, you've got the dockers strike where there's dockers locked out, the employers are organising as well, their own federation to, in effect, starve workers out when there's a mm. strike action taking place, the gas workers that are coming together. It's a, suddenly you're seeing this burgeoning movement developing of the formation of the TUC itself, but you also have the formation at the local level of the trades councils bringing people together. In fact, the trades councils emerge, and then the Manchester Trades Council invites others to come together to form effectively the what became the, T, the TUC itself. Mm-hmm. Just moving on to that, coming to you, Simon, at that stage, exactly as... Matt has said, you're, you're, you're seeing the emergence then of a political debate about society itself. The new ideas coming up. We're moving on from just cooperation. We're moving on from the economic, economistic demands of trade unions into ones that are looking at broader and more societal issues. So it isn't just about campaigning for a decent wage or the eight-hour day. It's about housing. It's about food. It's about making sure that people have control over their working lives. In other words, there's a debate around socialism. How does that emerge? And what organisational forms does it take as well? I think it's worth thinking a bit about um, um, some of the debates in the run-up to the sort of 18, kind of 70s, 1880s period, um, which Matthew touched on, which is that 
you know, the kind of collapse of Chartism, I think, really um, caused a shift in the working class, um, which often happens if your political movement is defeated, you turn to the trade unions. Um, and I think there was um, a bit of a tendency, though, for some of the trade union organisers at the time, because they're operating under the, you know, the conditions of the 1825 trade union laws, which effectively made any kind of political action, any kind of solidarity action, any kind of, you know, like any kind of meaningful uh, um, uh, working class action illegal. Um, it's actually quite similar to the conditions um, uh, the trade unions are in today. So there was a real concern amongst whole sections of trade union organisers at branch level or, you know, like even at some of the new national organisations that the union should stay away from politics. You know, there was this kind of brick wall between the trade unions over here that deal with workplace issues, and then the political struggle um, um, happens over there. Um, and when you get to see things like uh, Ernest Jones, who became one of the leaders of the Chartists, kind of as the Chartist movement was collapsing, um, agitating for a Labour parliament in the in, in the kind of mid-1850s, where they're saying, you know, working people are still excluded from parliament, even after, even after all the reform acts, everything like that. Why don't we set up our own parliament? We can have it in Manchester, delegates from workers, um, which is kind of quite a revolutionary idea. It didn't really pan out, but there was a lot of opposition from it within, within trade unions. You know, they'd go up to the um, the um, loom uh, weavers uh, who, who were um, locked out in Preston um, and, you know, kind of beseech them for support and sort of but the, the trade union organisers were dead against it. And I think that kind of debate really colours, you know, the whole of that second part of the kind of Victorian era. Um, and so the response really is kind of small socialist groups or sects um, kind of emerging, some of the debates, some of the old chartists kind of come back into political life. Um, and that obviously leads up to the formation of the independent Labour Party and also, you know, various Scottish um, uh, um, socialist organisations as well. But all of that has to be against this kind of economistic, as you said, John, this kind of economistic view of, you know, the economy's over here, trade unions deal with that and politics is over here. And that's for, you know, learned gentlemen and sort of educated people in Parliament who are normally liberals, um, obviously, at this point. Just map out some of those organisations. You've got the Social Democratic Federation under Heinemann. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so, so you have the SDF uh, under Heinemann. Um, uh, Heinemann is a... Um, a banker, very rich. Uh, he reads the Communist Manifesto. Uh, he's uh, bowled over by it and uh, decides that he's going to uh, introduce Marxism into Britain. Um, but he does it in a very kind of sectarian uh, way, um, in the sense of creating a sect which isn't, well, I mean, actually, the SDF does some very good work. Um, before I make the criticism, I'm going to say it does some very good work in some of the new trade unions. You know, some of the um, uh, some of the work in the 1880s, like around the new unions, like organising the unorganised and so on. The SDF does some re some very good work around that, but it still develops this kind of like slightly more sectarian attitude around politics and in kind of engaging in kind of wider political formations. However, when the TUC passes a motion to call for the Labour Representation Committee in 1900, the SDF turn up. You've got the Fabians, of course, um, you know, a real kind of Victorian era um, socialist organisation based on the idea of um, permeating the society, the kind of institutions of uh, Britain, um, like moving things gradually leftwards, um, a view of socialism, which is quite top down, um, and, you know, based on enlightened uh, um, individuals making the world a better place. Um, so the Fabians are involved as well. And then you have the Independent Labour Party, um, which uh, is um, a, you know, like a few thousand members at this point. Uh, obviously, Keir Hardy is kind of its leading light. Um, and the Independent Labour Party, you know, famously sort of owes more to Methodism than it does to Marxism. But they called themselves socialist and they had a conception of socialism and they were involved in the class struggle, um, but they were more sort of radical humanists, if you know what I mean. They sort of, they had a very ethical conception of socialism and building a better world. Um, so these kind of three different organisations, the SDF Fabians and the ILP come together alongside a big bulk of the TUC unions, uh, and that's the founding of Labour, um, which of course, crucially, it's about, a, it, like it's about an organisational break from the Liberals. Most trade union leaders at this point, most active political-minded trade unionists, 
are voting liberal, standing for the Liberal Party even, um, and uh, and sort of following the program of the Liberals of you know slow, gradual reform, not talking about socialism. Um, and the ILP wanted a kind of political break from that. What they got arguably was maybe not a political break, but certainly an organisational break in the sense that the LRC you know agrees to stand MPs. Let's add some colour to this. Heinemann, quite a remarkable character, as you said, banker, very rich, always turned up in his top hat and suit, etc. And then he always used to introduce his speeches when he turned up and dressed like that, was addressing working people, sarcastically or cynically, something people think, I actually think it was a good, eloquent way of introducing the concept of exploitation, because he said, I'm... I'm the people who I'm one of a class that your labor supports. And I can dress and parade like this on the strength of the exploitation of your, your labor. And talked about scientific so, socialism. And, but as you say, it was very um, sectarian. I won't compare him to a current, any leadership of current um, socialists. <laughs> <laughs> factions, but you can see how it degenerated in that way. Yeah. yeah. The other element, um, let me throw into it as well, the Socialist League under William Morris, which is mm. quite interesting, small group as well, attracted a lot of middle-class support, but did address the issues around alienation of labour and introduced an element as well of uh, the discussion about the role of culture in terms of developing ideas of socialism. I actually found his book, News From Nowhere, really actually a good read, an interesting read, because he's throwing in fresh ideas, not least what the House of Commons could be used for in the future in terms of um, the storage of, what would you call it, really? The storage of animal um, recycled materials. Let's put it that way, yeah? <laughs> Bullshit. In other words, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I just think that you get from Morris and other others, and Blatchford's writings, Nunquam, you get a real ferment of debate that's going on. With regard to the Webbs and the, the Fabians, again, there's an element there of the way in which uh, middle-class involvement amongst working, organi- working class organisations tries to provide an element of uh, what they would consider objective research. But there's a, a, if you like, an attempt to move away, as you say, from direct class struggle and concentrate on that influence of existing political parties. Just explain again the, the way in which the debate took place within the trade union movement. Because it's quite important, I think, that people recognise that part of the origins of the Labour Party itself is this discussion about independent representation and the potential of reform through existing political parties and the the need, if you like, for a more radical approach. And in some instances, some of that debate is being rehearsed again within the Labour and Trade Union movement around progressive alliances, etc., if I had my most critical hat on, I would say that um, the LRC, the Labour Representation Committee, was formed still very much stamped with the views of a liberal approach to politics, the kind of gradualist reform through Parliament, um, not, you know, the Marxist argument of, uh, you know, the emancipation of the working class is the act of the working class, but we need to get good people into parliament, people who won't let us down, um, um, to be able to push forward a progressive agenda. And obviously, at this point, the ideas of socialism, like if you read any of the founding documents of the LRC in 1900, I mean, they don't really have a conception of socialism in particular, like the Independent Labour Party has a conception of socialism, which of course, ended up in the old clause four the idea of redistribution uh, of the means of production, distribution and exchange. So more kind of like egalitarian view of the economy, which obviously was a major break from liberalism. But sort of the actual founding of the LRC was not particularly done along socialist lines. It was more about having a trade union fraction of uh, MPs in Parliament. And I think that 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 was a real problem in terms of the subsequent development of the Labour Party, because... It means that it was very much stamped with some of those views at the end of the Victorian era. 
Um, and of course, you know, there was a big problem because, as I said before, because there was still a conception that the economic class struggle happens over there in the workplace, and that's done by the unions, and the MPs are in Parliament and they do the political wing of it, um, which obviously is a false distinction. You know, like when you're fighting for socialism, it is political, it's economic, it's also social, it's also cultural. You know, it's the whole, it's the whole thing. You can't say the MPs are over here doing this and you know, the kind of workers are over there doing that. But nevertheless, because that view still persisted and still persists today, really, um, I think that was also that was also something that really hamstrung the political development of the Labour Party. Um, it was crucial to break the Lib Lab Pact because the whole point of the Lib Lab Pact obviously was the Liberals would get votes from trade unionists by promising to do nice things for them. But as Matthew said, you know, with the kind of industrialization of the economy, the industrialization of other economies, and therefore the emergence of imperialism as a global system, that raises the stakes much more. The economy becomes much more unstable, uh, and the Liberal Party can't deliver on some of its promises that it makes to um, to workers. So sort of Gladstone obviously is one of the key people here, leader of the Liberal Party, who is trying to push the Lib Lab Alliance. Um, but the Liberals keep on letting down the trade unionists. And so this is one of the things that kind of pushes the trade unions to set up a fraction of loyal MPs, often trade union uh, um, functionaries themselves in Parliament who will be more reliable. Um, but as I said, like I still think there was... As, like still the like the aroma of liberalism, which kind of runs through the DNA um, of the party, arguably to this day. Yeah, can I just come in on just come in, on, Matt. I, think, I think that's really true. I agree. Linked to that is that idea of and the clues in the name, isn't it? Labour representation, independent labour. Of the very one of the fault lines in the Lib Lab thing was that the Liberals didn't really like working class people representing working class people, mm. and so. It, integral to this shift and this development was the fact that Labour and the trade unions wanted working class people represented in, in Parliament, that they were speaking for their community and, and for their, their class. And I think that that's a really important bit. And it's often at a local level, what breaks down support, trade union support for Liberals is when the Liberals kind of don't want one of the lower orders to stand for Parliament. They want their own types to, to speak for them. And in some ways, a classic example of that is the formation of the ILP up in Bradford, when um, after a woollen strike, and it's Liberal employers, who are also the MPs, who run the woollen mills, who are exploiting the workers and the workers are on strike about. So out of that experience comes a recognition of the, a kind of division of interest, perhaps. John, could I go back over this period? I was thinking of stage calling because there's an intervention there, which is quite significant from James well, Keir Hardy. Well, I should go back a bit further and actually introduce the idea of community and women um, and changes that were happening in society. I mean, I think the, the socialists were having... Uh, their thinking was continuing through this period. Um, the concept of the eight-hour day was important, and that really took hold um, in the new unions. That One of the breaks they had from the traditional unions is that they weren't in communities, close-knit communities. The fact that the, um, the labour aristocracy also included, also incorporated unskilled miners, unskilled cotton workers, was because they lived together and were integrated in that way. I think when that began to break down and people were living in metropolitan areas without those contacts, um, the the, um, the, un the new unions had to work on a different basis. And I think obviously the eight-hour day was crucial within that. Uh, and stri the strikes that were happening then were often influenced by socialists. I mean, Annie Besant and the uh, the women match workers dispute. She didn't lead it, but she was part of the um, investigations that were going on into the atrocious conditions that gave it resources to, to be able to happen. 
uh, the gas workers with Rule Thorne, <clears throat> and of course Eleanor Marks. Um, that was around again an eight-hour day. <clears throat> Excuse me, I uh, The dockers they actually um, were ununionized and joined um, Ben Tillett's um, Tea Operatives Union. Um, again around terms and conditions that were conceded at the time so i think that the fact they were building new communities through the workplace instead of where they lived and i think that uh, along with i would say um, increased literacy where the newspapers began to be produced um, obviously Kerr hardy had the minor but there was uh, the Yorkshire Factory Times, Workingman's Times, The Clarion. All these papers were, were, I think, highly influential to people who were perhaps being moved from a trade union to a socialist perspective. And obviously the women that were being politicised and becoming active there were the very ones that went on later to become really significant people within uh, the Labour Party. And of course, behind that, again, you've got the suffrage campaign going on and um, how that was seen as a distraction often by the trade unions and uh, some uh, socialists at that time. and then, Again, um, as a as a, uh, a left field issue, you've got um, the um, the Irish Home Rule bills going through. So I think there's a real turmoil of different things happening at that stage, and some of them um, uh, I think did impact because they're often the key between them all was often the political people, the socialists, and sometimes to the despair of some of the trade union leaders, uh, these things, I think, actually took energy and uh, interest away and, and helped shape that movement. Talk to us, Pauline, about the role of Keir Hardy, though. Because he his yeah. I know we don't believe in sort of individualism, whatever, but actually he does represent that current that became so significant yeah. and played a role which was key. Yeah. Um, I would question somewhat the idea that the RP was straightforwardly um uh more Methodist than Marxist. Mm. I mean, the whole concept of organizing uh, uh, a party independent of the Liberals and the, the Tories uh, predated Hardy I mean, it came from Marxism, Engels promoted it. Um, but for Hardy, his experience as a trade unionist um, very quickly, I think, led him to, to question the whole idea of the, the Liberals being the uh, the party that, uh, that working people could depend on. Uh, even going back to his own experience, uh, when he wanted to stand as a candidate for Mid-Lanark, uh, the, Lib uh, the Liberals brought somebody up from London and they said, you know, go away and we, we might give you a seat later. Um, so that concept of representing his lo lo locality was central to his thinking, whereas for the lib Liberals, it was good enough to, to bring somebody from another um, country. Um, but I think the, his, his underlying concept of bringing together the economic and the political struggle together um, was really, uh, I think, central to his work through his entire political life. And he joined, um, he, he first attended a, a trade union congress 
um, as a miners delegate. And there was the, um, the head of his union, who is also a Liberal MP, um, his secretary of the parliamentary committee, uh, wearing, you know, he's uh, dressed very much like Heinemann, you know, with the, the top hat and the waistcoat and the gold chain, uh, speaking on behalf of working people. So, of course, Hardy, uh, at his very first TUC Congress, um, attacked him. Um, and uh, partly because uh, Broadhurst, the, 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 the leader of the miners, had supported uh, a candidate, a liberal candidate, who employed sweated labour. So the, the idea of the trade union movement being in opposition to, um, to, to bad employers was uh, was exposed. Uh, and of course, Hardy was shouted down, um, and uh, that began a struggle that he took time and time again to to the the TUC. Um, eventually, um, uh, I think Matthew referred to this. The um, uh, the the uh, rules of the um, or the standing orders of the trade union congress were changed so that uh, Hardy could no longer attend, uh, and trade councils were uh, excluded. I have to say that led to the formation of the Scottish Trade Union Council, which is probably one of the best things that, that came out of that period. Um, so with, uh, with some significant people like Hardy and Tom Mann were excluded, but uh, the work continued and it, as, as it was described, it became apparent that um, trade unions were going to have to defend themselves um, even from their, their friends in the, the, the Liberal Party. Um, so. The build, the, 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 really going back to um, their communities, as in the, the disputes in, in Bradford, uh, in London, in Scotland, they, these organisations that were coming out of that uh, were there ready for the formation of. Um, the the labour representation committee before that of course the um, it hadn't all been sweetness and light like the clarions uh, were could be in dispute with the ILP the SDF could um, be excluded from meetings um, so that um, um, the 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 sectarianism that still exists today was very much uh, apparent then. Hard to believe, isn't it, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just moving on, on Hardy's position, um, he chairs the he chairs the meeting to bring together people to form the ILP. Mm -hmm. He's standing, he stood, he stood in Lost, as you said, in Scotland. Then he stands in the East End of London and is elected. Mm -hmm. So we have then, in effect, independent Labour representation being formed. We then move on. We have and one person. <laughs> <laughs> Just take us through his role after that. Because actually yeah, having... I think he's, yeah. His experience from that um, being uh, a lone voice uh, and again very much like the um, his experience at the TUC being shouted down and booed when he got up to speak, uh, I think... It's, I, I just can't understand how how he had the strength to be able to continue through all that that he did. And he, he describes that period in Parliament as a place I remember with haunting horror. 
and uh, you can well understand that. I mean, it turns off his first day uh, in Parliament. I think deliberately dressed as a working man, uh, in his Sunday best right now, but as a working man, I think to lay down the gauntlet that he was going to be this different sort of Member of Parliament. But it was uh, a lonely and uh, I think um, extremely difficult place to be. Um, he worked all over um, Britain at that time, um, trying to recruit and trying to get other candidates, and in fact neglected, I think it's fair to say, his West Ham constituency. So when he lost there, um, he, he was a free agent for a while, but working uh, to bring the ILP together. And the um, and that was, I think, uh, a, a, an organization that was different. It, women played an extremely important part in that. They weren't just the, the, um, the tea makers, they were um, partly because of the, um, the campaign for suffrage going on at the same time, that, that women were, uh, were very active. Um, Hardy appealed to children as well. You know, he, he saw them as essential activists in a, a political campaign. Um, when he um, returned to Parliament in uh, 1900, having expected there to be a whole gang of them this time, and still found himself actually the only one because uh, Bell, who was elected at the same time as him, went to immediately join the or accepted the Liberal whip. Uh, it was not really a much improved position, but at that, what he did have going on outside is the changes taking place, I think, in the trade unions, the growth of um, support for an independent Labour Party, a party independent of the Liberals, and uh, his, um, uh, the activities through the, the, the new unions, um, and in fact, the, the work he was doing um, elsewhere in Ireland, he was very active in Ireland uh, in um, the, the Dublin lockout, and he's formed very close relationship with James Connolly. Um, and it's actually James Connolly who describes Hardy as the true representation of Marx. Uh, in terms of his understanding of the need to bring the trade union and Labour Party or a party uh, to represent Labour together. Um, so I think that time was particularly um, significant for the, the movement. And while I accept Sam's idea that the Labour Party was shaped in a certain way, it was I think the contradictions in it were shaped at that time. It's socialism that is embedded in it. It's sometimes hard to recognize, but that was there. So that in 1918, Sydney Webb had to produce the clause for this. Uh, we talked about um, um, the nature of the society we wanted to achieve. I'm doubtful whether Sydney Webb actually believed it, but it was a necessary stop to change the rules of the party at that time. Let's talk about that impact of the party at that stage, Matt. Hmm. Party Labour Representation Committee gets formed. We have independent representation. Hardy in and out of Parliament, but gets eventually stable, representative for Merthyr. Then Ramsay MacDonald, who's the secretary of the LRC, does a deal with the Liberals in terms of electoral deal, who electoral pact, who will stand where and gain what support. 
29 Labour MPs by 1906. But in the context of a Liberal government introducing mm. a, a raft of social reforms as well. So in some respects, also Labour MPs struggling to find their own voice as well in the development of the political programme. Same yeah. time, there's industrial turmoil going on in the, in the country up until the First World War. Well, how are the foundations laid at that stage? For as Pauline says, the eventual constitution, which does mm. in clause four commit us to an element of a socialist programme. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting. Isn't it? like on the one hand, you've got yeah, Labour establishing it itself, and on the other hand, it becomes part of this Lib Lab Pact, and is, there's a possibility, and there's a historical debate about if the First World War hadn't have happened, would Labour have developed beyond being a part of the Liberal Party or not? It's a kind of up-in-the-air debate about it. So it's a weird kind of, um, a kind of complicated position. I think it's interesting just going back that the formation of the LRC in 1900 is, of course, partly informed or largely informed by threats again to the legality of trade unions and positions about um, the right to strike and the liability of trade unions. I mean, 1901, after the LRC has formed a Taft Vale decision, and crucial to Labour is the miners coming on board and supporting the Labour Party. And that's absolutely uh, integral to it, because then the kind of bulk of the kind of trade union movement or the kind of perceived at the backbone of the trade union come, come over. So I think that's very important. But it was also a shot across the bow to the Liberals, of course, in that they have to try and accommodate Labour. And you get this, what we've talked about before, this tension between Liberals trying to be reformist and re, um, acknowledge the Labour interest, but then not really wanting working class people representing themselves and not necessarily going too far down any socialist path, obviously, that the that members of the Labour movement increasingly are moving moving towards. So yeah, absolutely, 1906 is really important. You can look at it two ways. On the one hand, maybe though that contingent of Labour MPs and Parliament are pushing the Liberals into doing things like Lloyd George's People's Budget and all that kind of stuff. On the other hand, are they simply being absorbed and kind of co-opted by the Liberals to maintain maintain the state status quo so it's a it's a kind of interesting thing the war kind of blows everything open of course and splits a liberal down the middle and creates that space where labor can come in and that those socialist ideas that we talk about begin to make more and more sense but the very fact the war was won as a result of often putting in place things like taking control of the railways and taking control of industry to run it in order to, to win the war i think it's when those socialist ideas make sense to people when they make sense of the trade unions about labor representation when they make sense that it's better for the um, nationalization or common ownership of the mines makes things better and protects workers better that's when it has its resonance and allows labor to kind of adopt its socialist identity simon the argument is it's a it's a labor party not a socialist party but a party with socialists within it what's the balance of forces do you think um, for the socialists, uh, mm. historically very bad. <laughs> I think this is the problem. But like, it goes back to the founding um, of the entire project in 1900. I mean, I agree with Pauline's point about the energy and sheer will of determination that Keir Hardy put into the project. And indeed, it might never have been founded if he wasn't alive at that time with those views that he had. Um, but you know, the seeds of the left being a minority force in the Labour Party is in you know, the socialist sort of like more radical left as opposed to the sort of the parliamentary um, uh, wing of the party um, were planted right at the beginning. I mean, Keir Hardy, you know, explicitly said, you know, this is going to be Labourism, not Marxism or socialism. We shouldn't have any of these kind of funny continental ideas. Um, it is going to be a party that focuses on uh, reforms an explicit rejection of Labour as a class struggle party, which was the proposal the SDF put in at the founding conference. And of course, this begins to have a very serious impact because when you get the huge upsurge of class struggle, um, uh, you know, the kind of the great wave of, you know, huge strikes, you know, like after 1910, before World War One, Labour's got nothing really to do with it. I mean, individual ILP activists and the ILP and sort of, you know, like more radical currents are um, are obviously active. But, I mean, GDH Cole, uh, writing in 1913, says, you know, like in the middle of this huge strike wave, kind of Labour's really got nothing to do with it, doesn't really orientate to it, because it's in Parliament pursuing a parliamentary 
strategy of reform. And I think like Pauline's right about the importance of a separate organisation for workers. But, you know, like as Matthew then pointed out, sort of immediately the Lib Lab pack is kind of re, re, like reactivated in Parliament. I mean, with separate like LRC Labour MPs, but nevertheless, they kind of act as an adjunct wing of the Liberal Party. And of course, then this kind of, you know, feeds into World War One, where, I mean, Labour's position, Labour's official position on World War One is to support the war, but to demand clarity over war aims. So Arthur Henderson, for instance, um, one of the leaders of the um, Iron Founders Union, is in the war kind of cabinet. He's kind of co-opted in. He's like, he's integrated into it. But then lots of individual, like, uh, but then lots of ILP members are in prison. Like, I think I read a thing saying something like 80% of the conscientious objectors uh, in prison during World War One were ILP members. So, like, so from the very beginning of Labour, you get that contradiction where you get, you know, senior leaders pursuing a war, um, uh, pursuing a war policy, and you get the rank and file members in prison, you know, because they're trying to resist it. Um, I think that the proper founding of Labour as a party in 1918, and you know, the clause, you know, the famous clause four that everyone focuses on. I mean, I think a lot of that was a reaction to the Russian Revolution of 1917. I think there was a real, you know, feeling amongst some of the more right-wing people like Arthur Henderson, um, that there was a danger of Bolshevism in Britain. You know, there was mutinies, there was a police strike, you know, the state's beginning to look very unstable. And so you need to cohere Labour as a explicitly reformist party. The manifesto makes lots of very, you know, kind of radical anti-capitalist statements, but of course, there's no real intention of overthrowing capitalism at this point from the Labour Party. It is more the gradual um, piecemeal reforms that are happening. I mean, when I was speaking about my book up in Glasgow um, a couple of years ago, someone from the, should we say, the more right of the party, um, a, 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 a moderate, um, to use the newspaper parlance, came along and he said, from his perspective, Labour was a counter-revolutionary party, but in a positive way, because he thought it was explicitly set up by Webb and Henderson in 1918 to stop the growth of Bolshevism in Britain. And you've got to say, it's been quite successful. So... <laughs> I, think the, um, uh, I think that it's interesting that um, uh, Labour had to, to adopt clause for their... To, and this is McKibben writes about this, is that it had to articulate a socialism that was acceptable to the trade unions for it to be adopted by the party as a whole because of the way that the party, parties organise. Yeah. So it's interesting the word socialist isn't actually, you know, in the in the clause four, is it? The actual word is yeah. not, not there. And when you look through Labour's um, manifestos in the 1920s, the S word is very rarely used. It's really not until after the Wall Street crash that socialism really gets a purchase as an alternative to what appears a fundamentally failed system. And people can see it's failed because of the Wall Street, Wall Street crash. So there's always, yeah, I, I agree with something. There's always been this slightly kind of a tentative relationship with, with socialism, embraced by, by quite a lot of people in the party, but also a kind of a wariness that it's, it's going to put off a lot of other voters as much as uh, other members of the party. It's always been that terrain, though, isn't it? Um, just as an aside, in terms of the, the, um, the those who opposed the war, my predecessor, Walter Ailes, in, in Hayes and Harlington, he actually was in prison for quite a period for opposing the, the war. Um, Pauline, it's always been that terrain. Well, you know, we use the term terrain of struggle. It's always been a battleground of ideas, hasn't it, the Labour Party? And at different stages, it's had to reflect the reality of what working class people are facing. And as a result of that, that's why you get policy statements or even constitutional changes, which reflect the views of the rank and file, but the views of the rank and file are reflecting what's going on in wider society. I mean, uh, I think it's uh, it's a sad fact that uh, the working class um, is often conservative to a small C, and I think the, uh, the the closer the party is to its communities, the more it has to struggle with that. Except on the occasional moments that happen from time to time when the class struggle is you know from the grassroots up uh, and i think the, um, the there have been times historically when that's been the case and um, they, they both the unions and the party have had to to respond to that but i think it's interesting that the um, um, the labor party changed 
significantly um, when um, I guess politics changed as well. I mean, I think uh, Kenneth Morgan's description of the 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 period after 1935 as being uh, the end of the Keir Hardy era of the Labour Party. But up until that point, every leader of the Labour Party had been a working man. Uh, they had come up through the, the ranks of the trade unions. There were miners, dockers, uh, railway workers. Uh, there, there were seven leaders in that period. Each one of them had uh, a manual trade. Uh, and they probably looked like working men. And they um, they were orators, they were leaders. And at that time, uh, following then, every leader of the party, less three, have been uh, not just university graduates, but um, Oxbridge or ancient Scottish. And the three that weren't were James Callaghan, Neil Kinnock and more latterly Jeremy Corbyn. So, uh, but prior to, to that period, I think the party still had its strong links in the um, in the trade unions and working class communities. It didn't make them socialists, um, but it made them more in touch and understanding of uh, I think the, of struggle. After that, it moved to a clearly pragmatic party, uh, resulting, of course, in the election of uh, Tony Blair, who took it to a new height. But that was a deliberate, I think, change that was introduced by people who were considered intellectuals, the Hugh Daltons, Tony Crossman, Roy Jenkins, uh, they set out to change the, the nature of the party. But I think as we've seen more recently, that can be um, um, subverted uh, by the membership. Uh, and I think some of the mistakes that were made more rapidly, like in the Collins Review, uh, to try and um, uh, frame the party in a particular way can go badly wrong. And I think during its history, it's had those blips uh, when that has happened. Um, and the, um, and the nature of the party locally um, can be quite different and framed by the local community in which it exists. And I think that's quite an interesting um, uh, relationship that we're seeing. Uh, whether that can make a difference over long term is, a, I mean, there are people who stay in the party regardless of the leader, regardless of its politics, because of the initial idea that it's the party of the trade unions, and that is how we will achieve the socialism. In terms of being susceptible to funny European ideas, I mean, I think we should remember that Keir Hardy was when was involved in the Second International. He spent much of his time mixing with these strange socialist ideas from, from Europe and existed very well and had very deep political friendships uh, with people for, from Europe and they influenced each other. It wasn't all a one-way street. Thanks for that. And we'll be doing a specific episode on the 1945, the Atlee government, which became, I suppose, the culmination of a the culmination of laborism, but based upon quite a significant role for pragmatic socialist policies in changing the world with the strength, with the establishment of the welfare state. Um, let me try and sum up the discussion in this in this way. Um, the history of the development of the party 
its formation from its trade union roots combined with the development of socialist ideas through its all these different groups produced this, and I wouldn't call it a compromise, I'd call it an, an unsettled settlement between laborism and socialism. And I don't think, thank goodness, that has been permanently settled in favor of just laborism. And the debate around how you the party can be used as a vehicle for more direct socialist practice is one that's going on even as even as we speak. But the foundations of the party itself clearly have um, set the parameters of the debate um, fairly at times rigidly, but there has been, and it's the point you've all made really, at different stages, the real world intrudes. And it intrudes in such a way that people, working class people, need and demand at times more radical change. And that's where the Labour Party, from, in my view, comes to the fore as a successful, as a successful medium of um, quite significant transformation. Thanks for all your views and contributions. Um, I'm really grateful.